looking together at some of the conditions that affect or afflict the human heart. Not the muscle that beats within us, but that place of core motivation, that basic orientation we have to life that serves as, in a sense, the spiritual pump at the center of ourselves. Many of the conditions that we've been talking about over these past few weeks are ones that are fairly obvious to the eye if you watch the people around you closely. When we meet somebody, for example, whose life is as tormented and as fragmented and as harried as the Gerasene demoniac we looked at some weeks back, it is not hard to immediately say, hey, that guy clearly has a heart problem. When we encounter somebody whose whose heart seems to be as dry and hard-baked as that woman at the well that Jesus cared for, eh, the well in Sychar. It's, it's easy enough to say, wow, now that gal's got some deep heart issues. I hope, I hope the Lord can reach her in that place. When we run into a person as ruthlessly selfish as that prodigal son that we met just last Sunday, it's a no-brainer to conclude, boy, that, no, that Toby needs a real turnaround in his life. Something's wrong with that guy's heart. I hope and pray God works on that with him. But not all heart conditions are that easy to spot. In fact, I think that there is a condition that is so remarkably pervasive and perhaps just so widely accepted, especially in religious circles, that many of its sufferers don't even realize they have a problem requiring treatment. In fact, even worse than that. The condition is such that the very symptoms of it are often regarded by its sufferers as evidences of their health. Of their health. It's this illness that we meet in the second part of the story that is commonly uh, referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. And you may recall from our study last week that Jesus has just told the story of a man who had two sons, as the storyline goes. The youngest son, whom I nicknamed Toby last week, is a study in an almost sociopathic kind of selfishness. And when this son finally comes to his senses and ultimately returns home, we see him being greeted by his father not with the crushing judgment that his appalling behavior probably deserves, maybe even certainly deserves, but we see him being greeted with an almost unimaginable outpouring of amazing grace. For the tax collectors and the other sinners who were listening to Jesus that day, and you note if you look at the very start, chapter 15, that Jesus on this particular day is being listened to by two audiences. And the first of those audiences, as described here, are the tax collectors, which are the pariahs, the political collaborators with Rome, hated by the common people, people greedy for their own interests. The tax collectors and the other sinners that are there listening to this teaching, the Bible says, obviously receive some kind of a sigh of relief in response to the news that Jesus gives in the parable of the prodigal son. Because the message of Jesus is this, that even if we have been appallingly selfish, even if we have violated all kinds of boundaries, even if we have offended profoundly against our family, against the father of the family, 
we can still come home. There is a way back home. We can do so because the heart of our Father is good in a way that no other human heart is quite so fully good. And His desire to bring us home, to express His goodness, to fill us up with that goodness, never stops. He doesn't just take us back into the household and then consign us to some perpetual place of penance. You miserable failure, I will never forget how you messed up. I'm going to keep my eye on you. You're going to have to prove your way back into my good grace. No, Jesus says that from the very start, as soon as our hearts open up to him with an awareness of how profoundly we need his grace and we turn ourselves towards him, he draws us right up as close as he can to his side and restores us to relationship, to a place of honor and influence right by his side. He shows us that in the end, no matter what we've heard, no matter what we've experienced, grace wins. Grace wins in this universe over which he is the sovereign God. Grace wins for those who know they need his grace. For the Son of Man, says Jesus, speaking of himself, comes for this purpose. This is my primary purpose, says Jesus. I have come in order to seek and to save that which was lost. What phenomenal news that is to the Toby in us all. What many people miss when they read Luke 15, however, is that this story of the selfish younger son, the recovery of this son and his heart, is actually only a setup for the true target of this chapter. In the crowd that day are not only the obviously sin-sick folks that we typically associate with the phrase lost people, but there is also there a group of Pharisees and teachers of the law, the scriptures say, and it is toward these ostensibly healthy people, not sin-sick people, healthy, righteous, religious people. It is towards these people that the great physician in this parable points his sharpest scalpel that day. And I want to talk about that with you today. Because having just described the lavish party that the father in the story is throwing for his recovered son, the obviously lost one, the story goes on, and I think it is here that it really gets interesting. And frankly, very personal. Maybe even disturbingly personal. Meanwhile, the text says the older son was in the field. What was he doing in the field? Working. He was working in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and he asked him what was going on. Why, your brother has come, the servant replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf. He's got out the prime rib. He's putting on all the fixings. He's struck up the stereo. He's got the music going. Because he has this lost son back now, safe and sound. Now, I want to stop right here with you and take a measure of this particular scene. 
According to the Jewish tradition, the older brother in any family was the one who would inherit the bulk of the family fortune when dad was gone. Okay? In other words, if you were in an elder brother position, you were already, from a material sense and from a status sense, powerfully blessed. Powerfully blessed. He's also the one who stands the most to gain from having his extended family close to him. Because in the Jewish system, that other part of the family would join in underneath the leadership of the older brother to take care of the family assets, to conduct the business of the family farm. And so this brother in this story is blessed again to have this freshly humbled whole partner with him who can assist him in running the operation when dad is gone. Most importantly, the older brother in this story is the one who has spent the most time with who? The father. That's right. He has spent the most time with dad in this story. He is the figure in the tale who has had the most opportunity to absorb what the father's heart is like. There are kids, you know, in the congregation. They're always paying attention. What is the heart of our parent? What's the heart of our parents like? They're just absorbing it. What are they seeing in in the way our heart is oriented in life? And so, in this particular story, you just would expect that this son would have developed a heart most like dad's because he had rubbed up against dad most often. I'm going to call this, I called the younger son last week Toby. I'm going to call this older one this week Tony. Okay? Tony, you'd expect, would have been affected the most by contact with dad. So, Tony is absolutely overjoyed, just like his dad is, to learn that his brother has finally come to his senses and come home, right? Right? He rushes, he rushes in with arms open wide and shouts out, Tobe, you're home! Man, I'm so glad to see you. I'm going down to the wine cellar. Man, you know, you take my chair at the table, man. It is great to have you back. Thank God you've come to your senses. Man, I was worried about you. Welcome home. Of course that's how he responds, right? No. No. The Bible says the older brother became angry and refused to go in. In other words, both Figuratively and physically, he refuses to enter in to the heart or home of his father. Now keep in mind that in the ancient Middle East, to refuse to attend a feast thrown by your father is the equivalent of giving him the highway salute. It is like refusing to go to the wedding. It is like refusing to go to, the, to your parents' anniversary party. Tony is dangerously close at this moment to the exact same line of contemptuous disrespect for his dad that Toby crossed when he left home in the first place. And if the father here is like 
normal fathers of that particular period in history, Tony is now close to being toast. He's in a heap of trouble. I mean, it's not looking good. But this father we have here in this story is not like ordinary people. This father has a different kind of heart than anybody in the culture that Jesus was addressing. This father has the heart of God. This father is actually God. That's who Jesus is talking about in this parable. And the Bible says that his father, instead of ordering the doors locked and that son of a mine sleeping out in the cold tonight for his disrespectful attitude towards me, for the the ways embarrassing me in front of my guests. Instead, the Bible says his father went out and pleaded with him. And pleaded with him. It's the very same behavior we saw last week from this father. When he hiked up his skirts and went running out at the very sight of the prodigal son coming up over the brow of the hill. It's the very same orientation of the heart we saw last week. Trying to close the distance, to close the distance between him and his loved one. What do I do when I get into a fight and maybe the other person starts to turn around? I sort of tend to stand there in a huff waiting to just see how repentant they really are. And if the person isn't repentant at all, like this older brother in the story, Man, I I have locked the door. I have locked the door. But the father is always looking to close the distance. So he goes out and pleads with him. He rushes out to him. Because the father loves both of these sons with a prodigal, which literally means extravagant, recklessly extravagant, maybe even from some points of view, wasteful kind of love. My son, the father says, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours. Don't you understand? We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. In other words, my heart is all about these relationships. Enter into the relationships of our home. The the father says here. But Tony... But Tony answers, look, look. And it's the equivalent of saying, look you, look you. All these years, I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who's squandered your property with you know what kind of women comes home You kill the fattened calf for him. Now think with me for a moment about all of this. Think with me for a moment. Because what we are hearing here is the heart cry of a person who for years has been the good kid in the family. He's been the good child. How many of you were the good child in the family? Okay. 
Tony has not colored outside any of the limits his father has laid down for him. He's lived by the rules. He hasn't rebelled in any of the visible ways that his sibling has. In fact, in fact, every time the sibling rebelled, he stuck tighter to the rules to provide a good contrast. He has appeared to be working faithfully, even heroically, burning the candle at both ends for his father's interest, never asking for anything back. And it is for this reason that many of us, when we read this parable, feel some genuine empathy for this elder brother. We can understand his outrage and hurt. We, can, we get his sense of the utter injustice of this loser brother suddenly getting all kinds of blessings when Toby has done Nothing to earn those blessings, and Tony has done so much. I am the oldest of six kids. I get this. I get this. But look closer at what Tony is saying here. Let's break it down. Let's break it down. The left column is what he is saying. The right column is what he's not saying. Tony considers the work he's been doing in his father's household, I quote, an act of slaving rather than an act of sonning, being a son. He stresses the fact that he never disobeyed his father's orders. He lived within the rules. Instead, of describing how he sought to live after his father's heart in a purposeful way. He's upset that his father never gave him even a goat so that he could party with his friends. Though all along, he had the greatest reward of all. A place right by dad's side. An opportunity to learn from him every day. And the promise of an amazing inheritance. Rather than viewing Toby as this brother of mine, Tony is furious that this son of yours has now received the blessings that I deserve. You see the irony in this tirade? Up to this point, the elder brother has appeared to be the exact opposite of the younger brother. But how different is he really? Does he really care for his father's heart more than Toby? Does he desire to know and serve his father's will any more than his younger brother? The answer is no. Both of them are primarily interested in dad for one thing, and that is what he can be manipulated into giving them. The only difference is the strategy they employ for getting what they want. Toby tries to get dad's stuff by raising holy heck, by being very, very bad until dad finally relents and lets him have the stuff and go. But Tony tries to get dad's stuff by being extremely good. 
by controlling dad by his very goodness, if he can. Each wants dad's blessings on their own terms, and each gets resentful that it takes so much time to get dad to shell out. Toby's heart burns with this very obvious kind of selfishness. Tony's heart, however, is afflicted with something that's so much harder to detect, so much tougher to root out. It is the heartworm of self-righteousness. It wraps itself into the very muscle tissue of all kinds of apparently good intentions, apparently good actions, but is ultimately the worm of self-centeredness. Tony thinks he's good. He congratulates himself on how good he is. He stews on how much he deserves for being so darn good. He boils at all the people who get breaks and blessings despite the fact that they are not very good. And this very self-righteousness blinds him to seeing that when it comes to taking in for himself or reflecting out to other people the true grace and the real goodness and the amazing generosity of the Father's heart, Tony is every bit as lost as Toby is. In his remarkable book, The Prodigal God, author Tim Keller contends that the primary problem facing the church of Jesus Christ today is that we are largely blind to this second kind of lostness. Let me stop there and let us think about that. This blindness, this way of looking at life, this orientation of the heart has become normative and actually mistaken for health in many places. Many churches, Keller bluntly contends, are actually congregations of elder brothers. They might have once been younger brothers, but they became older ones eventually. And in spite of the fact that we have been surrounded by the gospel of a scandalous, extravagant, reckless, impractical, irrational grace, in spite of the fact that we've heard story after story and parable after parable describing it, in spite of the fact that we've been to the cross year after year after year, many of us have refused to take it in. And as a result, we have not been able to, or maybe we've actually refused to enter into the Father's home, the Father's own heart. For example, we don't really believe that in the household of God, acceptance precedes obedience. Even though Jesus repeatedly declares that God's love and grace comes to people before they're cleaned up, while they're still messed up, and that obedience comes only afterward as as a way of expressing gratitude for that prevenient acceptance, even though we've heard this time and time again, we don't buy it. We don't buy it. We're convinced in our hearts that obedience has to come first. We or the people around us have to start doing good things before we're going to be accepted in order to gain God's acceptance. And on one level, that can look like humility. But on another level, it is a very dangerous kind of arrogance, if you think about it. 
We think that God is going to get won over by our good deeds. We think we're going to be able to rack up enough moral merit badges that he just absolutely has to, to pin a great award of acceptance upon you know, our banners. We believe that God can be compelled to give us what we want if we're good enough. He'll eventually deal out to us the happiness or the prosperity or the love or the eternal life that, that we demand if we follow the rules long enough and scrupulously enough. And so Keller writes, if, like the elder brother, you believe that God ought to bless you and ought to help you because you've worked so hard to obey him and to be such a good person, then Jesus may be your helper. He may be your example. He may be your inspiration. But he can't be your savior. Because you've already chosen to save yourself. By being such a perfect brother or sister. The result of all of this, of course, are many, many churchgoers, Christians, whose lives are marked by a certain joyless sense of drudgery about following the path of Jesus or the way of goodness. A sense almost of slavery, if we're honest about it to trying to do good, to being aware that it's hard to do, and this simmering frustration that in spite of these good deeds, we don't seem to be getting more blessings from God. Alongside of this is this often judgmental attitude towards those who are not following the rules anywhere near as strenuously as we are, and some real irritation that the Father isn't holding these non-religious, rebellious people anywhere near accountable Enough for it. I, I've watched my own heart in the midst of this whole health care discussion. All these uncovered people. What's my first thought? They haven't been paying into the system. They're cheating the system. Or they're taking such bad care of themselves. They've got all these younger brother habits. So we should lock them out. And that makes perfect sense for almost everybody except those who know the Father's heart. And I wish he laid out for us a clearer health care plan than we've got on the table right now. One that resolved all the tensions and conflicts. But it's clear to me that as we come at questions like these and social policies in general, we have to become clearer and clearer about the nature of the Father's heart towards the lost. It is hard. It's hard to come home if you're a Toby. It's harder to really enter into the heart of the Father if you're a Tony. The gospel of Jesus, declares Keller, is not religion. It's not irreligion. It's not morality or immorality, conservatism or liberalism. It is not moralism or relativism, nor is it something halfway along the spectrum between those two poles. 
The gospel of Jesus is something else altogether, which is why it's so hard to take it in, to really understand it. In the gospel's view, everyone is wrong. Everyone. And everyone is loved. Everyone. And everyone is called to recognize this and to make changes. Elder brothers divide the world into two sides. There are the good people like us who are in, and there are the bad people, the bad people who are the real problem with this world. And they're out. Younger brothers, even if they don't believe in God at all, do the exact same thing. They say, no, 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 no. The open-minded and tolerant people are in. And the bigoted, narrow-minded people who are the real problem with this world are out. But Jesus says, no, no. The humble are in. And the proud are out. The people who confess that they aren't particularly good, that they aren't particularly open-minded, are moving toward God, writes Keller, because the prerequisite for receiving the grace of God, the only, only entry requirement, is to know how much you need the grace. How about you? How's your heart? Do you know how much you need amazing grace? For some reason, it is easier for the Tobys of this world to say yes to that question than those of us Tonys in whom the worm of self-righteousness has burrowed deep down. I remember I used to be a Toby. I started out as a Toby. I became a Tony. You know, I lived in Tobyland for a little while, and then Tony took over. How did it happen? That's why the story of the younger son ends in celebration, and the story of the elder son ends in a dot, 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 because only Nicodemus and a few other Pharisees and teachers of the law were ever able to finally break away from the elder brother mentality. It's almost, it's so hard to break away from it. Only a few were able to finally get to the point where they said, yes, Jesus, I really need grace. I want to be a vessel of that grace at a whole different level in this world, like you were, like you are. I want my heart to beat after your heart, God. But to anybody who says that, says that whether you be a Toby or a Tony, the words of the Father still ring so clear, and this is what he says. This is what he says. As he closes the distance, as he comes your way, as he seeks you out wherever you are, he says, come on in. Come on in. I've saved a place for you. I've laid out the feast for you. The party won't be the same without you. For all that I have and all 
that I am is already yours. Please pray with me. Oh, Christ, our, our great physician, don't stop doing your surgery upon us. Root out from within us whatever it is that clogs and clenches and hurts our heart and make it like yours strong and loving and hopeful and free. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray.